Well, good morning, Church of the Red Door. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You ready for this? I'm not sure I am, but let's pray. Let's see if we can't get ready for this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this extraordinary day. And Lord, we, we pray that you would do a great work among us. Lord, every time we take your word, which is really just a picture of what we're gonna do a little bit later with communion, which is eating your flesh and drinking your blood, which is what you told them to do in John 6, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna partake of your, you are the word. So Lord, uh, communion's not just a symbol where you eat a little bread or take a little biscuit. Lord, it's, it's actually a picture, a symbol of us doing what we're about to do. And so that requires your spirit and that requires it both to empower me, but then to empower us as a congregation to have ears to hear and, and eyes to see. And so Lord, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, all right. Well, a number of weeks back, uh, we, we, we're, we finished up this um, portion and this section, and now I wanna kind of press into the second part of Luke chapter 18. And it's important that you see that this, this, this story of blind Bartimaeus, which just is a quick paragraph, oftentimes we see that as God's healing power, and rightfully so. Rightfully so, but there's something much more than that, and and I want I want to drive that point home to you today, and I think you can maybe grasp a lot of these encounters are as I alluded to last week, I believe templates for how we can and should encounter God and how God encounters us, how He approaches us. If you'll remember last week, we saw a couple of things. We saw Jesus approaching. We talked we talked a little bit about somebody had been giving an explanation a little bit to blind Bartimaeus because he cries out, son of David, uh, you know, have mercy on me, have mercy. So he had a little bit of an insight, otherwise he wouldn't have been shouting out and so anxious to get to Jesus. And, uh, and then everybody's trying to settle, settle down, big fella. Settle down, big fella, you know, be quiet, shush. You know, why are you yelling out so much? And the more they told him to quiet down, the louder, the louder he got. And so, there's a lot in that that are really, is really ex- not only explanatory to my encounters with Jesus, but also instructive to me about how, when I look back over my own life and I saw Jesus approaching even before I gave my life to Jesus. I saw things that God began to orchestrate in my life even before I ever, well, uttered his name or just said I was gonna be a disciple or I was gonna follow him or certainly before I got baptized, you know, it was just, it was just amazing. I can see that in my own life. And there were people who were giving me an explanation of Jesus and what that meant and who, and who he was and, and all those kinds of things. Now, I didn't have to know everything about Jesus to determine that I was gonna follow him, but there was at least some kind of an explanation, certainly my, and within the context of my own family and, and growing up in those, it was mostly my parents who gave me an explanation and you know, being drugged to church, you know, and, and whether or not I was listening or not, I was listening and having those, encounters and then obviously when I gave my life to Jesus there were plenty of people saying you just need to calm down about this you are just going way overboard I mean I remember I will never forget an encounter that I had many of you know that I played college golf on the old Southwest Conference you know and uh, we were on a we were I think we were in Austin we were at a golf tournament and one of the guys uh, who I had had a fist fight with earlier before he got baptized I mean we'd had a we'd come to blows and uh, he had 
really hurt significantly his ankle or something and I was in there and I read something like this and I go I'm going right into that hospital and I don't care what anybody says I am gonna lay my hands on him and he just was furious that I was doing this and I was gonna pray and I sat outside his hospital room and I was convinced that God was gonna heal him and he didn't and that was kind of a humili humiliating thing and everybody on my but you know that was just part of and we would do things on campus and I was just as loud and, and usually un, well, and I did it in a way that was new believer style. I just, you know, it, there was a purity in it, but there was a real lack of knowledge and discernment and, and all that. But they were, they were, you need to calm down about all this. Be quiet, be quiet. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. Jesus had radically transformed the way I saw the world. I didn't fear death or anything anymore. So we're gonna look at the next parts of this. So let's go back, let's read this quick paragraph and then let's unpack it a little bit more this morning. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. <clears throat> as you'll remember, as Jesus was approaching, which we determined Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging and now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire, inquire, well, what, what was going on here? And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he just kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And this is where we're gonna start this morning. Jesus stopped, Jesus stopped. And he commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. He says, Jesus says, well, what do you want? And look at that a little bit this morning as well. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight, began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Okay, so what we're gonna look at this morning is Jesus stopped. We say, well, that's, you know, well, of course he did. I mean, this was his ministry. Not, not of course. Jesus stopped. It's, I think sometimes we, we imagine that God is so distant and out there and that we're going to kind of mill around down here and hopefully throw up a few Hail Marys and maybe he'll occasionally notice us. And certainly when we get to the pearly gates, maybe he'll remember us in some form or fashion. That is not the case. Jesus, again, begins to talk with great specificity about the significance of him knowing all the details of who you are. The number of hairs on your head, he realizes when birds fall out of the sky, he, he feeds them, uh, the flowers of the field, they're here today and gone tomorrow, and yet God clothes them, clothes them with even more splendor than, well, anybody in Solomon's court. Any, I mean, the whole, you look at the whole picture. I mean, the Bible tells us in a crazy way, and it's hard to imagine with, what are we, how many billions of people on the planet now? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, it's just impossible, it's just not possible. I mean, we, because why? Because I can't, the reason you don't believe that is because you can't, you think I can't conceive that I could keep track of billions of people and the number of hairs on their head. But you also can't speak into existence something out of nothing either. Don't imagine that we're dealing with the finite, we're dealing with the infinite, we're dealing with the creator himself. So, Jesus stopped. That speaks, well, it speaks a lot to me. Why? Because Jesus is into total restoration 
of the created order. And then I'm going to add, eventually, eventually. I was with a number of pastors yesterday, and I was uh, asked, there were three or four of us, to go over, and there's a local pastor here uh, named Craig, and he's on his last weeks. He's been battling cancer for, I don't know, the last four or five years. And uh, what he and his wife have been through is just unimaginable to me. And we went to his house and he's now been given weeks. And so uh, the pastor at Southwest, Ricky and Jason Duff over at Garden, myself and a couple other guys and Nate. And we went over there just to pray for him, spend some time with him. And I wonder how many hours, how many hours have been prayed over Craig's life for this cancer to be eradicated. I wonder how many prayers have been prayed for while you remember my ministry partner. Five and a half years of slow descent into eventually losing his life to cancer, and it's uh, come a year and a half now. It's just impossible to imagine. How many hours of countless prayer and faith extended? And And oftentimes I think, well, gosh, we had at least that much faith. I mean, this guy didn't hardly know anything about Jesus. He's just, he's throwing a Hail Mary, and he, he, yeah, he had enough faith to not be quiet, but I mean, certainly we, we at least elevated our faith level to that place, didn't we? Haven't we had that amount of faith? Haven't there, collectively, haven't we brought to bear at least that amount of faith, and yet then they, well, some are healed and some are not. I don't know what's gonna happen to Craig over these next number of weeks. Of course we prayed for his healing. We'll continue to pray for his healing. If you think of him, pray for him this week and his wife, Trisha, pray for him. And I've seen it, I've watched it, and I'm gonna show you a clip in a minute of someone who was blind and in, in, in the Middle East, and they were blind, and, the, and, and a friend of mine was on a mission, missionary journey, and she received her sight. But remember, Jesus is into total restoration of the created order eventually. Sometimes it's gonna be with a resurrected body. Sometimes there might be punctuated moments of incredible healing. Now, the faith crowd would say, if your faith will rise to the level than anything, because it says right here, if you just have the faith, you know, as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be you removed and cast into the sea. And of course, now you have this big disagreement in the body of Christ. You have secessionists which say, God's not really doing that kind of thing anymore. Not that he can, he's just not doing that anymore. He did that to confirm the apostolic authority and their ability to, you know, write the scripture. And so he authenticated their their ministry by doing miracles. And that's one side of the camp. And the other side of the camp is if you just have enough faith, just have enough faith in anything, anything you can be healed from. And, and, I'm just, and I just step back from all of it and I go, uh, yes and no and yes and no. I don't, know, I don't know where, I am not a secessionist because I've seen too many people be healed. I mean, radically healed, like just, inexplicably, a healing has occurred. And then at the same time, I've also seen great prayers go forward for years. Well, even Paul, and and he says, and yet the Lord said, I'm not gonna take this away from you, it's gonna be your, and he described it as this thorn in the flesh because my power is perfected in weakness. So there are two things that can occur when you have sickness or distress or oppression 
or anything in your life, two things that can occur. God can either heal you, glorify himself, and advance the gospel, and solve your affliction, which he wants to do, either now or eventually, or he'll take that suffering, that oppression, that strife, that chaos that may be in your life, and use it to conform you to the image of his son, looking forward to the eventual absolute restoration that may even happen, well, not until your death. Certainly it's the case in the world as we look at the world. Sometimes people are healed and sometimes people are not healed. That's what I see. That's the reality of my experience with the gospel. I'm not willing to go all the way this way and I'm not willing to go all the way this way. I said he's sovereign and sometimes he heals and James tells us to bring people forward and anoint them with oil with the elders and we still do that and we pray over people and sometimes they're healed and, and oftentimes they're not healed and then there's this loving response which is okay, if that's the case and God's allowing you to go through this then let's see what we can learn. I can't always tell people that directly because I'm there to show compassion. But in the end, as we look through the scripture, well, why would it say, 1 Peter 4, share the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Count it as joy, James 1, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect work, making you perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So suffering physically, emotionally, all these what Sometimes the Lord chooses not to heal you, but eventually, as a follower, eventually, you're gonna to be totally restored. Eventually. That's what I see. In this case, like that. Bartimaeus, I was blind, now I'm seeing. Woo, that is good stuff. Of course, I hope to see that yesterday. As I see a man lying on his couch and family gathered around and I've been in those situations many times over the last several decades, many bedsides. Maybe if I lived in a college town, not so many, <laughs> but I don't, I live in Palm Springs. I've seen a lot of people at their, at their last, their last week, their last days and sometimes their last moments of life. Still doesn't draw me away from the reality that Jesus still is stopping, even though at times it may appear like he has passed you by. Maybe, but eventually your request will be granted because all things, the period of the restoration of all things will be at hand, at hand. So, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 61 is, is, again, some 700 years before the time of Jesus. Isaiah is looking into the future. Jesus, as I have taught many times, is such a, a critical juncture because this inaugurates the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He stands up in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth to begin his ministry after having been tempted in the wilderness and tested in the wilderness for those 40 days. The Spirit lead, had led him into the wilderness and the Spirit led him out of the wilderness and right into the synagogue. And he stood up in the synagogue and read the following, Isaiah chapter 61, verse one. And again, this is repeated in the New Testament because Jesus is quoting Isaiah and it says simply this, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me 
giving me the power, the authority, the, the anointing to bring good news to the afflicted. Gospel means good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Bartimaeus was clearly a prisoner of his own physical malady. There's no question about it. And in that case, there was a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He was a prisoner to his own blindness, physically, literally. And at that moment, he was released. And my question to you this morning is, is was that, is that the primary application here and we'll see it again in Isaiah 35 as well people being who are lame that are leaping and people who are deaf being able to hear and people who are blind being able to physically look around and see is that the primary reason for which Jesus came to the earth it is part of the reason but it is not the fullness of the reason the spiritual application here trumps Everything. If I regain my sight, my sight physically and don't regain my sight spiritually, then all for naught. All for naught. So a good friend of mine, and, and uh, his name's Brent Napton, and we went to uh, Rice together. He played on the football team, and I was on the golf team, and we, we were really close, and I still keep in touch with him. We talk often, he and his wife, Michelle, and he, he is an engineer and he's just a, just a brilliant guy, but even more so, just an extraordinary, extraordinary follower of Jesus. Every time I talk to Brent on the phone, I know that he's gonna preach to me for 15 minutes. I guarantee he's gonna go down a long string of verses and he's gonna preach and I'm just gonna love it. I'm just gonna listen. I mean, Brent, and he, he could be making a gazillion dollars. He's one of those kind of guys, but his call is to go right into the, Middle East, 1040 window. He just has always had a call for whatever reason to be a missionary and go to those places. And he, put, he has put himself, his, and I, there's story after story to tell, in great physical danger to do this. And this is a clip that they recorded because they were trying to. So going in, he, he took a medical group and some doctors and things. And one of these doctors uh, is an Asian gentleman, and he was a believer, but he did not believe that God still healed. He was a secessionist. It, in other words, that, those gifts have ceased. So Brent said, look, I understand your deal here, and you're going to be helping. We're going to be going in and helping people medically, and I believe that this, this, these folks were in Egypt. He says, I believe, you know, but I'm still going to train you how to pray for somebody, even if you're not sure you believe it, just pray for people like this, that they would be healed. And so, uh, so he did. And then this, well, this emerged, let's watch.
concern is, don't you? We're believing that nations are being changed right here. You discern it, don't you? You are called to go to the nations. You discern it, don't you? This is a generation of risk takers. So receive now the nations of the earth. Be sent to the continents and the nations of the earth, to Africa and Australia, to Asia and the Middle East, to Europe and to North America, Central and South America, to the islands of the sea, to the extreme north and the extreme south. Let the cultures, the peoples and tribes and tongues of the nations now color your soul and change how you look at this hurting earth. So skeptics will say, ah, there had to be, you know, something, you know, maybe there's a little blockage and he put some drops or something, you know. It doesn't matter. It was the same time during Jesus. People always ask, well, they saw these miracles. How didn't everybody believe? Well, just the same way it works in the 21st century, you know. Science begins to explore the in intelligent design. Everything points towards some kind of a designer, and people still, I don't believe in that. I mean, there, there are just as many miracles being demonstrated, and, and, and I think just science's exploration is an exploration of the mind of God, and so the more clear it becomes that this doesn't look like, this looks like a set-up job, then people still say they don't believe it. Look, skeptics will be skeptical. Just the reality of it. So what, what was the case here? What, what, what had happened? Well, Jesus was clear. It's your, it's your faith. But it started by Jesus stopping. Jesus stopped. And by the way, uh, as I was talking to Brent this week, I said, do you mind if I use this clip? He goes, oh, I can't wait for you to use the clip with Church at the Red Door. I'd love for you to use that. And he said, please let everybody know that that little orchestra, that was not orchestrated. Because you saw there were thousands of people that they were ministering to. And that, that guy had prayed or done actual physical, medical help with all, a lot of these people that, were, that had this big outreach that the Lord had told him to do. And go out and rent all these, put up this tent in the middle of it. And, and he, he thinks, I didn't think anybody's going to show up. And 5,000 people show up. So they had prayed for all kinds of people. And it, nothing was orchestrated. And right when they asked, who, who was it that prayed for you? This guy, the Asian doctor, had just walked down the stairs by chance. And so Brent says, just let them know that was not orchestrated in any way, shape, or form. And you saw the look of utter surprise. This is the person you prayed for, and she's hailing him as a hero. And you could see kind of uh, almost the dumbfounded look on his face. Uh, Jesus stops. Jesus stops. Regardless of where you are, Jesus is concerned about your plight. He's either going to heal you of whatever you're afflicted with, or he's going to allow you to bear it as a thorn, and he's going to transform you through the process. It's one or the other, but Jesus is aware of where you are in your struggle. That's the full testimony of this story, Jesus. Well, Jesus stopped. Secondly, he asked an incredible story, and uh, this just turned into a three-part series, and everybody back in, the, back in the little deal back there are going, yeah, I, can, I know exactly what they're doing back in the control room. <laughs> they're laughing, but anyway, uh, I don't want to skip over this part because it's really the crux of this particular passage, but the question he asks is profound, and I think about it a lot, and I see it emerge in a couple of contexts, and I'm going to use one of those that I've taught in a men's group, and I actually spoke when I was in Texas regarding this, and I said, I can't just skip 
over this. It's too powerful and it's too specific to where we are. Jesus often asks questions like, what do you want? What are you seeking? Have you ever thought about that? What are you seeking? What does you, what brings you here? Worship, some of you maybe. Maybe you're watching on television, you're watching online. This could be 10 years later somehow. And you're watching and Jesus would still be asking the same question, what do you want me to do for you? And in an ultimate way, I think, well, whoa, let's, let's go back in time and ask, I wonder what Paul, the apostle Paul, or Peter, or James, or John, I wonder what we would want their answer to be. Well, you know, I've got this new chariot I've been looking at. I really want it. It's got some really nice wheels on it, and that's what I'm asking you for. I mean, would, would you lose a little confidence in, in the apostolic authority if you knew that their ultimate desire was to have a new chariot? Or, or would it be something, would, would you want it to be, Lord, here's what I want. I want you to use me to go into all the nations and carry out that great commission you gave us uh, you know, right before you ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And I want you to empower me and give me spiritual gifting and, and uh, give me the sustainable joy and courage. And I, would you want that prayer or would you want the chariot prayer? Looking back, because we're, you know, I spend so much time reading Paul, I would want him to have some pretty purified desires if he got the genie in a bottle moment, and that's how people view this. Do you view Jesus as a genie in a bottle, or do you view Jesus as the creator, as Paul says in Colossians, as the creator and sustainer of all things, and that he has a plan, and he wants to involve you in his plan, and so be praying those prayers? Now, that doesn't mean that he's not interested in the details, or what car you drive, or, or your financial situation. You should do that as well, but if you get this one moment of Jesus stopping and here it is, what do you want me to do for you? What, well, what is the answer to that question? And what is the driving? If you were to say, this is the overarching narrative of my life reflects, because I have many petitions before the Lord. Lord, would you please build this church so we can get on a piece of property and, and not have to be vagabonds. And, and Lord, there's just, a, I, that's one prayer. One prayer's for my wife right now. You know, she's suffering. Another prayer's for my, my family. Many of my prayers go up and I think about you and those of you on the prayer list. And as the Lord would bring that to my mind and people who are suffering and you can't grow your family like we do with a church and not have a lot of people suffering in various ways. And and so uh, often their prayers, so there are a lot of prayers, but the overarching narrative of my prayer life, I pray revolves around people regaining their spiritual sight and how can I serve that end goal. I don't say that in a pious way. I don't say that, I say that in, a, in an informed way. I think that's what Jesus wants our heart to be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things that are still important and I'm still stopping and I still see people and their suffering. And, and it, but your primary, Lord, advance. Your kingdom come, your will be done. John chapter one, we're gonna finish with this this morning. John chapter one is another very interesting encounter 
It's in the early adoption of some of these disciples. Now we know a lot about Peter, James, and John, and we know a lot about Judas Iscariot for not so great reasons, but some of them we don't know as much about because we're not given that much information. But we get this little insight into Nathanael. John chapter one, verse 35. Again, the next day, John, that was John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked. Again, where is that? Jesus is approaching. Now, let's think back into our templates. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work this story into the larger template of what we're trying to look at. Because you're gonna see Jesus approaching, you're gonna see some explanation of who he is, you're gonna see, you're gonna see similar patterns in any kind of first encounter with Jesus. Are you with me? All right, so this is another story of which we can put that template and overlay it here and see some similarities and also get some added insight, if you will. So he looked, John the Baptist, and see Jesus approaching, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And John, well, I'm going to ask you the question. So John the Baptist had in some ways now described Jesus, had he not? Behold the Lamb of God. That's some interesting information. They didn't have that information before. And at, at, at the very least, even if they had no, and I promise you they didn't have any comprehension of what he was saying. I don't think John the Baptist understood the fullness of what he was saying when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. I think that was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what happened at this stage, they're like, at least what they saw, and I want you to get this as a takeaway today, at least what they saw is that John the Baptist was deferring to, glorifying, pointing to, in some way, Jesus. Some of you say, I just don't know the Bible well enough, it's hard for me, and I'm afraid I get in a conversation at a party or in a social situation or with a neighbor playing golf with somebody or, you know, some, something, and they're going to ask me a question, I'm not going to know it, and so I just try to kind of, you know, I try to kind of keep it zipped a little bit. But I said, even, even the, the earliest walkers with Jesus, the brand new infants can at least say, like, that, and that's... They can, they can somehow point toward, uh, glorify, if you will. That just means to elevate, to lift someone up so everybody can see something. Are you doing that with the primary focus of your life? Is it, does it revolve around at least pointing toward Jesus? The tragedy would be becoming a stumbling stone and prohibiting people from entering the kingdom like many of the religious people did during the time of Jesus. That's a terrifying thought. Jesus turned and, well, he saw them follow and he said to them, here again. So we've just had it. We had Jesus approaching. We have an explanation. And then we have Jesus saying what? What do you seek? This is similar. Are you following me? We're trying to develop this, at least I am, maybe. We're trying to develop this so you can think about not only Jesus in your own personal walk, but Jesus exporting Jesus to people around you. 
These are some necessary steps, some explanation. And again, I told you, Jesus approaching, well, how do you do that? Well, you don't do that. The Holy Spirit does the work of convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. People are having experiences around you that you think are so far from God, they could never come. They're such skeptics, they're such atheists, and you love them. It might be a family member or somebody, and you're just like, there's no way, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And I'm just saying the Holy Spirit now is the work of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is approaching, whether you're aware of it or not, in their lives. Just remember that. You may be put there as an explanatory, with an explanatory role of who he is. And now he's going to begin to ask, what do you want? What do you seek? This is now Jesus' personal encounter with every human being, and I, and I do believe that every human being, before they breathe their last, will in some way, some in very detailed fashion, some in a very, what I would consider opaque way, but somehow the Spirit of Jesus through the Holy Spirit will be approaching and will begin asking the question, what do you seek? And they said, well, Rabbi, it uh, just means teacher, what, where are you staying? And he said, well, he said, come and see. There's an invitation. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't met with skepticism. Because the next question, well, well, where are you staying? That means I'm not just shutting this short. So somebody, if somebody just shows a hint, a hint of interest, spend your time there. Okay, let me say this again. Spend your time if someone shows just a hint of interest. Spend your time in prayer if somebody's a complete skeptic, but spend your time, spend your energy, spend your money, spend your whatever it is, your influence, spend it once you see any kind of click in somebody, like all of a sudden they turn from skeptic to, I don't know, or just anything that you sense in your spirit, there's movement. Jesus has approached and there's, there's an engagement here. Now does Jesus want to use me to, to, to say, well, come and see. And I've told you, I do that all the time. I just, you know, one of the great things is somebody shows interest, come and see. Now in my world, that might be, hey, let's go to, let's go to Phoenix and go to the Phoenix Open or let's, uh, let's go play golf together or whatever it is. I'm just saying, if I sense something, I'll spend time there. And if I don't, if I sense nothing, I might be praying and my praying might be elevated in that person's life. If I sense no like movement there and I might elevate my prayers uh, or, or increase them, but I'll wait to sense that there's a turn and I'll say, oh, okay, come and see. Meaning, uh, let's go hang out together. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Well, why don't you come hang out and just check it out? Maybe you've got somebody right now and maybe church at the red door isn't the first step. Maybe it's just, hey, we're gonna go down and feed some poor people. And like, well, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'll do that. Have you ever thought about that? If you're gonna go down to the mission and do something, why don't you take two or three people with you that aren't believers at all? I mean, I'm just asking you, let's change our thinking for a second. And if you see any kind of movement or willingness or uh, overt, philanthropic desire emerge out of someone who never you've never sensed that from invite them take them just just let bring them into some kind of Jesus atmosphere just hey we'll come hang out I beg you to think like this this is the pattern that I think Jesus is showing us 
And so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. In other words, faith, as we'll see in a minute, faith caused them to do that, didn't they? To take the next step. So at some point, there has to be a faith response in someone to continue. They have to then take the next step. Okay, go, we'll come hang out or let's go somewhere or come and see or whatever. And if they do, that's a great act of faith for a lot of people, by the way. That's an extraordinary act of faith. Because especially if they already know you as the religious gal or something or that, or that and then they're willing to spend some time with you, that, that can be a mountain in their lives, a stone in the road for them to try to get to the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's way bigger than you can possibly imagine, spiritually and every other way, philosophically, intellectually, everything. It's a massive thing and they say, okay, I'll go with you. And that's an incredible act of faith. Even if they have no idea really what they're doing, but it's a, it's a step of faith to even just take a step towards you. Because if you're a Jesus person, someone takes a step toward you, they're taking a step toward Jesus. If you're a living sacrifice, giving your, giving your body, this is our spiritual service of worship, is what that says in Romans 12.1. This is your spiritual service of worship. You want to worship God? Give your body to him. I'll live in it, and then so now I'm using you to say, what do you want? I'm using you to say, come and see. I'm using you as a physical, literal, created, order person to now be my hands and my feet. That gets me excited. It's also an incredible, incredibly weighty task. So to do that, God's got to have to chisel me down, transform me, continue to do an ongoing work in me, and sometimes that's painful. Now, let reverse that, strike that. All the time, that's painful. All the time. That's a cross we all must bear. It was about the 10th hour, verse 40 says, and one of the two who heard John speak and, and they followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he found his first uh, his, uh, he found first his uh, own brother Simon and said, hey, we found the Messiah. Now, this is one of those moments where you just need to shut up, be quiet. <laughs> and he's unwilling to do it. No, we found the Messiah. And of course, and that just means Christ. He, and he brought him to Jesus. So Jesus, again, now had been described to Andrew, right? So there's an explanatory thing that has gone on here. So he served in that. So he was described by Andrew. And Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael says to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Really? And Philip said, we'll come and see. Now Philip takes on the words of Jesus and becomes the invitation giver. We'll come and see. Are you following me? Right. So I want you to see. Jesus says, we'll come and hang out with me. And now here's another come and see with John kind of deal. And there's another, and there's another come and see, 
So you can see they're just practicing this. We knew Jesus was approaching. He needed a little explanation. Hey, why don't you come hang out and check it out? Just come check it out a little bit. You don't, you don't, well, I don't want to go to church. All right, well, we got other things that we do. We call them beachheads. We call them outposts here at Church of the Red Door. There are a lot of places that people can go and just kind of hang out with their niche demographic or whatever, and eventually they might find themselves here. Eventually they won't, but that's not the primary work of the gospel is just getting people to go to church. It's to get them to encounter the living Jesus. Well, before... This, this is too funny. Now listen to this. It's almost comic relief. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? <laughs> he, now clearly he doesn't know Jesus. I mean, how do you know me? How do you know about me? Do you know how many people are asking that question? Well, how do you know about me? I created you would be the appropriate response. I know the number of hairs on your head. I've been approaching you through various means for, well, since really even before the day you were born, I, I knew you in the inward parts. I fashioned you. How do I know you? Now, Jesus doesn't give him that explanation here. He simply says this. Now, catch this. He says, he says Jesus answered, that before Philip called you, and when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. In other words, Jesus was approaching even before Nathanael had any clue, right? He was just sitting under a fig tree. And Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see a whole lot greater things than these. You ain't seen nothing yet. Are you impressed with that? Because I saw you under a fig tree? Really? I say to you that you're going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on. And then again, again, son of David, yes, but also the son of man. Again, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Daniel 7, which was him basically saying the Father's going to, you know, all authority and dominion and power, everything's going to be given over to me. And you're impressed with that? You know, it's amazing how people come to Jesus. It's something that you would say is almost inconsequential, seemingly a meaningless moment. I try to remind uh, men that I, I spend most of my time, you know, discipling and spending time and, and, and seeing people. I love seeing men just advance in their faith. I, I just, it's just one of the thrills of my life because it's a call on my life. But I always have to remind men, I said, look, if you've been around the Bible and all this and you're used to drinking this water and you're just, this is kind of a daily activity for you or daily bread, you know, you're used to just kind of munching away on Jesus' flesh, his word on Jesus and his teaching and his words. And you're just, you're pretty much used to that. You forget that if someone's starving or someone hasn't had a drink of water for you know, their entire life. And then you go over there, and again, I've, show, I've used this, and I just get a little, and I flick it on them. <laughs> what would seem inconsequential to you in your own journey, because you've heard 50,000 sermons, and you've read your Bible, and you've attended a Bible study, maybe some of you, what would seem really inconsequential to you might be life-transforming to somebody else. Don't forget the beauty of the task that is before us. The spirit of the living God, if you're born again, lives on the inside of you, wants to use you 
to do exactly what Jesus did. Right here. Give an explanation. Come and see. Come hang out. And when you start making that the primary narrative of your life, you will see, well, things like we just saw. See, Brent wouldn't have seen that just sitting in, you know, working as an electrical engineer. I mean, he could have. But chances are, unless he followed the voice of the Lord, who put the desire to go into this very challenging region of the world with the message of the gospel and to train leaders and all that kind of thing, chances are he wouldn't have seen that. He might have, but, but chances are. The more you go down this little rabbit hole, the more you, you know, whatever, Pastor Paul preached, you know, a message like the Matrix. You, you, eat, you take that, the red or the blue pill, and you take the one that sends you into this whole new scene, this whole new unseen realm where you are now not just an observer but a participant. You ain't seen nothing yet. See, I, I've seen more miraculous supernatural things than I could have ever, ever imagined, and I believe with all my heart I hadn't seen anything yet. Do you believe that as a church? Do you believe that in your own walk? Well, it, it requires you giving your body a living sacrifice. And then you can enter into the same temple. Jesus is inviting you into this process. That's what I'm trying to say, if you get nothing else this morning. He's inviting you into this process. This is how he did it. This is how he showed us to do it. This is a simple way to think about it, but a lot of people are so overwhelmed with the idea of leading someone to Christ. Look, you just, just follow some of these general principles and pray and, and, and give your body a living sacrifice and well, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're impressed with that? You're gonna see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What does that even mean? I mean, you're going to see Jesus so glorified and so evident and obvious that when somebody says, well, do you believe in Jesus? You're like, are you kidding me? Do I believe, do I, do I believe I'm married? Do I believe I have kids? Do I believe I'm in the United States? I've experienced it. Although I live in California, I'm not so sure that's the United States anymore. But anyway, <laughs> you get the point. You believe it. You just believe it because you've experienced it. This is how you experience it, right here. And we'll, we'll, we'll finish this. At some point in the future, should Jesus not come back? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn this back over to Pastor Paul for communion. Remember what we're doing, just remember we're always, this is, not, this is a symbol, but you can do this all day in a legalistic kind of I'm gonna, the bread and the blood, you know, the wine, all that. All right, we did communion. We, well, you need to do that because Jesus said you need to do this to remember me. But remember, if you, if you, what we're doing this is a symbol, but if you really wanna take communion, you're gonna do that tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and you might do multiple times a day. You wanna do it all day. Well, you wanna get to the place where you're just always doing it. Everything is informed by that. 